0: From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast.
1: Welcome to HBS Insights, a regular podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host today, Michael Steele, a partner here at the firm. Today I'm joined by Kelly Wanser of Silverlining to discuss her work in this in this important area. So just start by telling me a little bit about your organization.
0: So I am the founder and executive director of Silverlining, which is a three-year-old nonprofit specifically focused on near term climate risk. So, I came into the field from the technology sector uh, a number of years ago um, with concern for what looked like might be risk exposure around the next several decades with regard to uh, where the climate system was heading versus the solutions we had in our portfolio. So Silverlining is really a mission organization that's dedicated to defining a trajectory where we would have sufficient information and research on options to ensure that we have safety in your system and that we can do that in the next five to ten years so that we can cover any risk exposure we have in, in the next 30 to 40 years while we're working on the po- portfolio for reducing emissions that address the underlying climate
1: problem. So you're trying to save the planet.
0: In uh, in in the first part of the problem space, yes.
1: Yes,
0: <laughs> which is which is a
1: pretty important pretty important project.
0: It's the part that, that buys you the time for the next part of the problem space. So we you know we 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 think that there's exposure to risk that we don't understand very well. We think there are tools that we might need. Scientists have given us some indication of what those tool, where those tools might live that we might work on. And so our work is um, spanning across government advocacy, as well as we have a private research effort, um, and we work with different types of stakeholders in different parts of the equation to drive research forward, and also to drive uh, science-based policy, that we really look at things in an evidence-based, science-based way, and that we work together on decisions uh, in that way.
1: And so when you talk about the tools that may be available, you know, what... What are they? What is climate intervention? What does that look like? Um, what are the areas that, that may, be, uh, may be fruitful in that, in that endeavor?
0: Well, that's a great question. Uh, and uh, some scientists started to look at that question a couple decades ago. And there were a couple of big scientific assessments that went through looking at kind of the various things proposed if you wanted to cool the climate quickly mm-hmm. in a few years or a decade. And everything from mirrors in space to plastic sheets on the Arctic to uh, bubbles on the ocean, Mm -hmm. white roofs. Um, And where the scientific community landed in both the UK and the US was that the most promising approaches are uh, based on the process, some of the processes that are part of what keeps the Earth system cool which is the reflection of sunlight from particles and clouds in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. What what makes the Earth from space look like a shiny dot, the pale blue dot. And there have been observations of how sunlight gets reflected off changes in the composition of particles and clouds in the atmosphere that have led them to believe that a small tweak in that reflectivity, like a 1% to 2% increase in how reflective the atmosphere is, could provide several degrees of cooling. Mm -hmm. And so so that's the kind of starting point. Is basically leveraging the atmosphere as a piece of technology. But it's a challenge because these atmospheric processes that drive how uh, cooling works are one of the bigger uncertainties in what we know about climate and weather. So it forces us to hone in research-wise and research investment-wise. Uh, not only on, oh, are there new tools, but actually the new tools are based on the existing atmosphere. And so we need, there are some investments that we haven't quite made well enough mm-hmm. in understanding and observing that atmosphere, which now might might be something we can leverage to help stabilize the system for a little while.
1: Uh, and I, I want to come back to the tools in a second, but let's talk a little bit about the potential near-term risks. I mean, what are the things that keep you up at night? What are you... What are we not worried enough about in terms of the potential for near-term climate catastrophe?
0: Well, so I think um, there are really three things. Uh, The first thing is something that the IPCC came forward and said very blatantly for the first time in their recent report, which is that um, regardless of what we do with emissions reduction over the next 30 years, the Earth will continue to warm, right? So, so number one consideration is that we've got a warming that is caused by existing greenhouse gases and some of the latent effects on the earth system that's going to continue no matter what else, we how successful we are in our climate commitments, the rest of our portfolio. So that's problem number one, is that whatever risk we have now is projected to increase over the next 30 years. And so that risk, it lives in two categories. One are the sort of catastrophic impacts. And we're seeing those today in the form of these unprecedented fires in terms of extreme flooding events, right. other extreme weather events. We've got drought in certain parts of the world. And given that the earth is projected to continue to warm, what we can expect is those extremes to increase. And so that means what we're seeing this year is likely to be worse in subsequent years. And so the economic cost of that is extraordinarily Huge. high, right? Yeah. And, and even a small, a small limitation or decrease in those extremes is, is worth billions or perhaps even trillions of dollars globally. And so just looking at what is a highly probable increase mm-hmm. in the extremes that we're seeing now, enormously costly, and even in what is projected relatively conservatively about displacement of people um, some of the projections now are a billion people displaced by 2050, yeah. and so one of our concerns is, you know, a we've got the economic and, and human costs for everyone, and b we have a specific question of what is our responsibility to those billion people. For it. Right. Right. So, so that's problem number one. Problem space number one. Problem space number two are the less uh, um, are the less well understood, more uncertain. Um, catastrophic risks of abrupt changes in natural systems. And in particular, those changes that cause what scientists call feedbacks or either greenhouse gases or additional warming coming into the system from the natural ecosystems themselves. And what keeps me up at night today is that recently uh, some observational studies have uh, been published that indicates that some of those changes might be starting to happen.
1: And is that polar ice caps? Is that tundra? Is that what's, what, are, uh, what are we most worried about? Or Great what, are we, what should we be watching?
0: Uh, well, the ones that you can watch, because there are recent studies of these, um, one is the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. And so, a study that was uh, one of the partners was NOAA and other international groups where they flew over the rainforest and measured the gases coming off, Um, actually retrospectively. So this is the study itself happened a couple of years ago. And what they found is that the Amazon rainforest as a whole is releasing more greenhouse gases than it's absorbing.
1: Which is not what we think it should be doing.
0: Which is not. So um, it was um, kind of notoriously called the lungs of the planet. Right. It takes in CO2, gives out oxygen. It's one of the big sort of drivers of the health of a climate system. And so if, in fact, it, it has what scientists call tipped mm-hmm. into being a source of greenhouse gases versus a sink, that's in in historically, when they talked about tipping points, that would be one of the historically great accelerants of right. climate change. What we don't know, and what silver lining is uncomfortable with, <laughs> our lack of knowledge about, it, is whether or not... Uh, what. A, whether or not that's reversible or restable right. or temporary as a result of some, you know, uh, increased fire and deforestation activity. So number one, can we stop it? Can we reverse it? Number two, what happens downstream of that? Right. So the, the reports that have come out about climate change recently, which are pretty concerning of themselves... Those projections do not include this, and so, so we're very concerned that we rapidly are able to build this into our estimates of what risk picture do we have, and what, if anything, what might we need to arrest or reverse the situation, policy-wise, other measures-wise. And so so the, the Amazon Reinforce is one really important example. Another example is uh, in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Both in terms of what's happening to the forests there, the, um, the boreal forests, and those are also important uh, absorbers of CO two, who may be reaching some tipping points in their function. And then the permafrost, which is you know there were some stories in the news a couple days ago yeah. about these explosions and these old mines, causes. yeah, yeah. And so so the permafrost is one of the world's great stores of carbon dating back millions of years. The dead dinosaurs live in there as carbon now. And so as that melts, that carbon gets released in the form of gases that can be methane or CO2. And that is one of the potentially great accelerants of climate change that we're starting to see. And one of our concerns is that we don't actually have comprehensive observations that help us watch what's happening. And so if you think of the Earth like a patient who's sick, but we don't know how sick, what we don't have is a good ICU with a monitoring system. We
1: don't have a thermometer. We don't have a temperature take.
0: A thermometer. We need a thermometer. We need an EEG. We need lots of different monitoring tools so that we can watch the patient and see what's happening. And so we so today, one of our big concerns is that we don't have good monitoring of these potential abrupt changes, and we also don't have the tools to help us quickly and effectively model and do risk assessment. Right. And so that's one of the things that we work on with both the research teams that we work with directly and, and in our government advocacy to say, how can we quickly build our capabilities to have the information, do the risk assessment, and then translate that to how we're going to respond.
1: Well, so how would you describe the, the current state of climate intervention research in the United States?
0: Well, I would say uh, it's better than it was a few years ago. So, um,
1: moving in the right direction. Moving
0: in the right direction. So, Silver Lining started uh, back in 2018. Uh, to talk with policymakers and government agencies about this, and one of the challenges is that research in this field has been very taboo, mm-hmm. and there's been a, a little bit of a poor um, positioning or poor representation of what the research is. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because it's, you know, it's tended to travel under the banner of geoengineering, and folks tend to think well, with a word like that it must include a lot of engineering, right. and that work on this means you're ready to go out and engineer the planet. Um, And so what's missing is the fact that this is a really, really applied um, form of atmospheric research, and that there there are some real gaps in our atmospheric research capabilities. So a few years ago, we started talking to members of Congress and folks in government agencies, um, more specifically, tracking to what we had learned from the Centers of Excellence in Science,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: to say, you know, we have... We see that we have this potential near term risk problem. Scientific assessments have indicated where we might look for some solutions. Where we might look for some solutions maps to some underinvestment in atmospheric research. So here are some really good places to start. Right. And a couple of good places to start are, you know, what do we know about the stratosphere? Do we have good observations of that? Do we, do we have the tools that we need to model what it does? What do we know about low clouds and the way they interact with particles, Mm -hmm. which is a really big, important question in science. And so then we start to work with everyone in the government system on opening up the basic research around those questions and this more specific research on the affiliated climate interventions. So where it is now, today, three years later, there are research programs in NOAA and the Department of Energy They're heavily science-based, heavily atmospheric science-oriented. There are some emerging sort of projects in different agencies to start to look at some of the risk questions around climate intervention, the modeling tools, the things we might need. And there was a National Academy of Sciences follow-on study Mm -hmm. to the 2015 study that said, hey, these are the kind of things to look at. To uh, the 2021 study that said, actually, we recommend a national research program, and that study that recommended a national research program in these atmospheric solar climate interventions um, came about two weeks after a National Academy study that recommended that climate science in the U.S. reorient itself around risk. Mm-hmm. So, so for us, you know, where we've seen a Pretty big shift in the past three years in, in the US scene is that um, climate intervention research has a place in the sort of legitimate science functions and it's moving forward in the right place, which is heavily in atmospheric research and climate research. Um, and geared towards we, what we hope is how um, when good decisions are made about the environment and climate, or medicine or vaccines. They tend to run through a heavily science-based process where there's a lot of open science, there's a scientific assessment, and 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 most people looking at information can start to agree on what it says. Come
1: to consensus, yeah.
0: So that's what we're hopeful that in the United States, especially since we have a lot of the assets that you need to study this question, and not every country does, that we we may be, despite all of our dysfunction in many areas, <laughs> moving this forward in, in a helpful and constructive way. And the other final thing I'll say about it in the U.S. is it's been bipartisan. Right. So it's been very bipartisan uh, in Congress, and it's been a place of agreement and a, and a place of increasing support for climate research and observation.
1: So we've just been talking about the situation in the U.S., but this is obviously a global issue, how is Silver Lining approached climate intervention in an international setting?
0: Well, that's a great question because they're quite intertwined. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, a couple of years ago, we were really interested in the question of when the world makes decisions together uh, about environmental issues. Um, you know, what, what are the characteristics of when it works well? And, <laughs> and what, what are the characteristics when it doesn't and so we started uh, an effort um, where we worked with two top U.S.-based international climate law and policy experts, mm-hmm. uh, Dan Bedansky, who wrote the book International Climate Law, who's at ASU, and Sue Biniaz, who was at the UN Foundation and is now the lead climate negotiator for the U.S. and the State Department. And so we have a series of papers that they worked on that were really about traversing through for something like solar or climate intervention, which is global by nature, highly scientifically complex, and sits in the context of a risk-risk situation. Um, what are the fora for how decisions get made about that internationally? Mm-hmm. Um, what are our options for where to take it? what would it look like uh, if you were to try to design or, or work forward on a process that was effective mm-hmm. and that particularly was effective in the context of one of the important principles of international environmental law, which is safety. So they oriented sort of their um, their uh, review around that principle of safety and then looking at the context of international and how you move things forward. And so the second principle after safety, when these things work well, is the science basis. And where are those places where there's a strong science-based approach mm-hmm. to how decisions get made? And how closely linked are the science and the decisions? And the gold standard for that turns out to be the Montreal Protocol, mm-hmm. which governs the ozone layer, which is arguably the most successful uh, environmental effort
1: International, by, yeah, yeah.
0: internationally by humanity. And it, interestingly, it's incredibly strongly science-based, science-driven, um, and also it is the only legally binding uh, mechanism that is signed by all the countries in the world. So, So looking at that and saying, okay, well, we're really interested in, you know, how can we move things forward in a way where uh, the world can uh, engage with and respond to the science and preferably make decisions together and preferably comply with them together. <laughs> and uh, and, and so, um, so from that, uh, it emerged that one of the ways that these things can, can work constructively is through scientific cooperation,
2: mm-hmm.
0: scientific openness and scientific cooperation. And we think that that's really critical in this area, and it's actually a little bit of a hard problem in this area because to do climate science requires big technology assets. Right. So the climate models that help do the prediction and help us understand what will happen in my part of the world, what will happen in my state, what will happen in my town, they take massive amounts of computing. Yeah. When they're run at full scale, they're run on usually government supercomputers in the United States, Europe, UK, maybe Japan, sometimes China. Outside of that, um, most people are working secondhand in really constrained or simplified ways. And so, one of the things that we do in Silver Lining, so we do sort of traditional looking advocacy in the US government and the UN. We run a research fund where we fund researchers who we hope to move into publicly funded science tracks. But we also work on the technology side right. to say what are the technologies that can help us accelerate our understanding of the problem and open it up.
1: And that brings us to the collaboration with, with AWS and and some of the work that you've been doing to, to provide that computational support for climate modeling.
0: That's right. So um, one of the I guess one of the useful things about coming in from another sector is being able to say, oh, we can see some ways, some you know, low-hanging fruit opportunities where there might be um, ways that that sector can apply what it knows out of you. And in the case of climate science, we have this really interesting circumstance where it's operating in what tech we call a really legacy way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, pretty old school, like everything's on the supercomputers and everybody has to you know submit a grant and wait for the bureaucracy and, and all that sort of thing. And a lot of the rest of the world, even quite sophisticated computing requirements have shifted to the cloud where... Yeah. It's very agile. You can scale it up. You can scale it back. Um, And so what we, but climate models in particular are at the extreme end of sophistication for what you can do. So they're very large, and they operate in a way that usually requires tight network uh, interfaces. And so for a long time, it was perceived that they weren't really compatible with cloud operation. And so uh, one of the things that, that we wanted to do in our dialogues with researchers and with tech companies, is to say, you know, when is it there and how can we help adoption? And there are lots of reasons besides technology why the cloud is not used in this space. Um, and in fact, cloud adoption is a hard problem. I was there when banks were working on it in the 90s. It's a big shift, organizationally, culturally, skills-wise. And so it's a hard problem. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that helps the problem is lighthouse projects, helping with the technology transition having some resources to do it and so we we've been we had been working with Amazon on the possibility of trying to run one of the big global climate models on the cloud in conjunction with one of our research efforts and doing that so that that ultimately eventually those models could be made available for simulations to the rest of the world and immediately when those simulations would run the big data sets that they generate would be available to researchers all over the world, and especially in the Global South. Right. So so that's something that we just announced a few weeks ago and is going on right now. And it's a bit of a game changer in terms of what it means for participation in research by people in the Global South in particular, but really all kinds of researchers. And it's a pretty big game changer in terms of transparency. Mm Which if you think about something sensitive and something that everyone has a stake in, you know, when we think about governance and what's important for the world to make decisions, that sort of transparency and access is something that we think is critical.
1: That makes sense. And what, what are some of the other major initiatives that you've that you've launched as part of Silverlining?
0: Well, so um, despite the fact that we you know we have we had an initial practice thrust towards climate interventions, mm-hmm. um, the the kind of information that we need to make decisions about these things has taken us in directions we didn't expect. And so, as I mentioned earlier um, in the podcast, we ran across what, what looked to be a pretty severe underinvestment in our ability to monitor and observe the atmosphere and the surface. And, um, and I can take a little side segue into what satellites can and can't do. Right. So there's yet another news story today, claiming satellites to do it all. Um, but I've become very entrained in what satellites can and can't do, and they can't see at night, and they can't see under clouds, and they can't vertically resolve things. There's a lot that they can't do. And so, we're, so we ended up uh, really interested in making sure that we had the, the first-order data what is the system actually doing? Mm-hmm. And if you were going to you know, put material into the atmosphere to slightly brighten it, you would be very literal about wanting to have great information about what, what was in the atmosphere and what the atmosphere was doing. Turns out we need that for greenhouse gases too. And they're influencing the atmosphere And the data that we have about where they come from and how they behave is actually very weak. It's so weak that we cannot attribute the source of greenhouse gases for something like monitoring and verification if we wanted to put teeth in the Paris Agreement.
1: Which seems so strange. I mean, this is a problem we've been grappling with for decades in some ways.
0: It, 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 it was strange to us, too, <laughs> it, and in some ways still is. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to, um, to figure out why that is. Um, I think at least part of the reason that that, that is, it's not the entire reason, is that you know the 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 climate change problem and the greenhouse gas problem, you know, in its origins back in the eighties or nineties, looked like something you just kind of marginally turned the dial down on yeah. you know, year on year, decade by decade. And so you don't really let it get to the point where you have big instabilities and lots of catastrophes and um and so therefore You know, the things you need to do are more on the regulatory industrial side. Mm -hmm. You're going to tune the greenhouse gases out of the system, and you don't need to make big investments in specific understanding of what the system's going to do, particularly when it's starting to be unstable. Well, so now we're in a different place. And, you know, we actually, what we're seeing is that we think some of the highest return on investment investments in all of government are in the observation of the atmosphere and surface of the planet. That there are potential to improve our weather forecasts. Mm -hmm. There are potential to reduce uncertainty about these catastrophic impacts that we're seeing. There are potential to help us make decisions about how to respond to climate change. Even, you know, a $50 million investment in floats that go across the ocean to provide better um, Climatological information just at the surface of the ocean. We think that's probably the highest ROI investment in all of government. Wow. And and similarly to that, and this one's competing with it, which is one of the programs that we started to work on. Uh, is um, we're missing, you know, really good high resolution, um, frequent observations of different layers of the atmosphere.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And both the gases and particles. And it turns out there have been some pilots, particularly in Europe, of putting instruments on commercial aircraft Mm -hmm. to take those kinds of measurements. And in the United States, the one form of measurement goes on um, today, which is the measurement of humidity, water vapor in the air. That's a really important measurement for weather prediction. And that's the measurement that we lost during COVID when, if you heard in the news, that the weather predictions became less accurate. Right. There are about 150 planes that fly across the U.S. that submit our weather vapor data back, and they are important to our weather forecasts. Those are actually going offline. Mm-hmm. So if those programs are not continued over the next few years, they're slated to go offline. So the we- and but that's not as expansive as it could be, and so that and that's just weather vapor. In Europe, they have a program of a half a dozen aircraft that fly instruments that include greenhouse gases. And so they get these very rich, very specific greenhouse gas measurements all the way from the arc to the grounds, the whole path the aircraft flies. And But it's only about a half a dozen aircraft in motion at any time. But that has provided orders of magnitude, improved data over what you can get from satellites and the land stations sure. that they have. So uh, we've been working with NOAA and uh, NOAA in the context of the pilot with Boeing and Alaska Airlines to look at the possibility of putting these instruments on commercial aircraft, starting first a pilot potentially with aircraft to fly uh, routes in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And Alaska and the Arctic is one of the blind spots for climate and for some of the risks that we're talking about. So this pilot in and of itself could be enormously valuable and actually help improve climate predictions by itself. But as a pathway to then expanding onto bigger fleets Mm -hmm. that do the continental US and then pass beyond that, we could have a network of continuous, high-resolution, robust observations that help us attribute greenhouse gases, improve climate weather predictions. Make
1: more informed decisions.
0: And it's cost-effective. I mean, these are platforms of opportunity. Right. So the relative cost of this is quite low compared to other ways
1: of doing it. They're already flying.
0: They're already flying. So that's something we're working on now. It's not a done deal, but it's you know in that category of information could be trans- transformational in terms of our ability both to predict what's happening and to figure out how to respond to it. And I'm just going to say a note here on, you know, the role of information in, um, in how you manage environmental risk. You know, ordinarily in environmental regulatory contexts, monitoring is a really important part of environmental compliance. If we look at climate and emissions, we're lacking that monitoring layer. And everything that's being postulated right now in the U.S. and in the U.N. is based on self-reporting. And for folks, you've got market-based folks here. You've got, you know, it not, not a lot happens in the commercial sector that relies purely on self right. right.
1: <laughs> Trust but verify is an
0: important business. Uh.
1: <laughs> so this has been a great conversation. I want to, for the folks who are listening who are policymakers, regulators, congressional staff, where should they go to get more information about this topic, to learn more about, about both silver lining but, um, but the topic itself and, and the work that you're doing?
0: Well, I, I will say to go to silverlining.ngo. We are a .ngo, which is uh, an extension not many people are aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and on Silverlining, we published a report um, for U.S. policymakers, which actually gives a pretty good end-to-end coverage of the near-term climate risk question and the climate intervention question. Um, there were also there's also the recent national academy of sciences report mm-hmm. um, both the pair of reports that came out in March of 2021 mm-hmm. um, so the the report on what they call in in, in the report title uh, reflecting sunlight to cool earth and a national research agenda for that and I'm not immediately remem- remembering the title of the report on the U.S. Uh, national, I think it's the U.S. Global Change Research Program,
1: mm-hmm.
0: National Direction, something to that effect.
1: Something similar.
0: Something similar. And so, so those are good kind of starting points on a U.S. policy basis. Um, if you want something really quick, I have a 12-minute TED Talk
2: that's <laughs> on the
0: website uh, to get you acquainted um, so So those are some good starting points. I would also point you to either our website or C2es c2es.org. C2ES is the nonprofit uh, NGO that organizes the UN climate negotiators in advance of the big climate meetings. And they published the papers I was referring to about earlier in,
1: in About international in governments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, by,
0: by Suvinias and Dan Bedansky. And I would say those are really, if, if you're looking at the international context, those are the place to start.
1: That's terrific. Well, thanks so much to Kelly for joining me today. I'm Michael Steele. As always, thanks for listening to HPS Insights and have a great day.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast. Produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights. And follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.